think at the beginning of this retreat I talked about um, the context, establishing the context within which to to meditate or cultivate. Um, the context I suggested then was the context of the refuges and the precepts. That is, one, one abides within this particular field, sphere of consciousness, a consciousness that that uh, first of all goes to that place of trust, of faith, of uh, of being able to have trust and faith. Sometimes just taking refuge itself, taking the refuges, is is uh, takes a bit of doing, you know, because that was so on edge or so uh, caught up in uh, having to be and become and find and know and figure it out, and get on top of things that. Uh, to really just go to a more yielding space, which perhaps at first is less less smart, less clever, less affirmative, a kind of softness, a soft, humble kind of, well, I know this, this I know directly. You know, here's, my, here's my place of, here's my place where the anxiety or the worry or the, the stress and strain stop. Practicing within that context and trying to actually establish that context and then, you know, get familiar with it, that, that, that feeling, that kind of energy of the mind or sphere of consciousness and then practice from that. So saying the practice from that we call viveka or non-attachment. Non-attachment is like the refuges in in action, if you like, or in relationship to what's happening. It means that we, with our body and mind, we're not tensed up, we're not demanding, we're not um, ashamed, we're not uh, guilty, we're not frightened, we're not desperate. We can find a refuge place and we can be at that refuge place of honesty, openness, and recognizing without... uh, not a hankering or dejection. Okay, this is the way the body is. This is what it feels, this is what the feelings are. The mind is like this now. Now it's bright, now it's happy. Now it's sad, now it's dejected. Now it's dark, now it's turbulent. That then and actually if you practice in that way you'll find the refuge continually strengthens in you, the ability to to be spacious about your your jealousy or your craving or your you know even the, the rather dark side of things. Yeah. You know if you want to re- realize and 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 uh, how does an unenlightened person get to become enlightened? You know when the basic you see the whole kind of impossibility of that. We have to go to the refuge place rather than ourself. So, you know, I think maybe maybe this is becoming a clearer experience. The precepts are like uh, the willing, the practicality, which is the hallmark of uh, particularly of Buddhist spirituality, is it's very earthy, it's very pragmatic. It's not. Uh, it's got its philosophy and it's got its high and refined ideas, but it's always grounded on 
you know, the acceptance of basically you've got to you've got to fit within a particular earthbound experience where there's where there's the possibilities of fear and violence and abusing people and abusing yourself. Very distinct and available options. And you actually set up the context saying, I'm gonna put everything you know, I'm gonna put an effort into just you know, establishing a ground of my life where this stuff is not going to take over. You can still experience the, the that, the what we call the vipaka or the, the 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 like the remembered or the habits that have been established. We still experience our violence and rage, our craving and desires, you know, wanting to escape our escapist fantasies. But you're actually putting a putting a a, a ring around it, and a fence around it, so you don't act on it, and then you can then you can contemplate these. And the Dharma, that the Dharma refuge is that which which is called the highest medicine. In that it, um, you know, just by being able to be mindful and get the trust and the dispassion to be mindful of these these um, karmic tendencies, they they gradually the, the passion dies out of them. You know, you you stop wincing and uh, and believing in in the in the moves of the mind. And with that, when the passion dies out of them, they start to just lose their energy systems, and they begin to just kind of drop away and fade out. That's very pragmatic. There's nothing. You know, you don't have to be a saint. You know, it's just kind of this this real clear reality of. You know, this is the stuff that the human beings have got to deal with. And none of us were born in, in on lotus leaves. We all kind of dragged ourselves up through kinds of squabbling and fighting and grabbing and seizing and demanding and, and complaining and all that kind of stuff. So we're all kind of really human beings. This is a teaching for human beings who are, who are a bit grubby and admired and bashed up a bit. <laughs> and the Buddha said this is where this is teaching for the, the human realm. Because despite all of that, the miracle, the beauty of it, despite all that, is that we can, all of us, we can put at one moment at a time Sometimes only for one moment we can step out of it. We can say, we can rise up, we can say, that's that. And we can refrain. You know, and you've got, sometimes you've got to make your practice just very much a moment, a moment, a moment, like as you notice with your practice of meditation, to be mindful. You know, you realize that the thing doesn't just stay there, does it? You know, you've got to keep lifting it on and then reflecting on and uh, uh, holding and grasping and when you're deceiving yourself kind of imagining you're, you're with your breath when really it's, you've lost the moorings altogether and it really is often a kind of moment by moment uh, attending and balancing and beginning again this is the context of the practice it would be wrong It'll be, it would be corrupt to say it's anything other than that. It's anything, you know, there's no wonder, there's no magic in it. There's no, you know, just do this and everything's going to be all right. 
there's no think thing as you know now you, you do a retreat and now all your all the problems are solved but in a retreat you can actually remember a context rehearse a context refresh it commit yourself get that feeling of of uprightness and then you know then you've got to go on and keep with it and keep realizing the context the idea of precepts and refuges is to establish a context that's not dependent on a particular person being around or, or in a particular group or a you know, building or something or even a particular posture these are fine these are great, you know, it's lovely when these the chances can happen to us but uh, we've got to use these to invest in what will really take us through, keep us going rather than just have a nice time you know I have something, another experience that begins and ends you think, well that was good, now something else you've got to be able to invest in it and uh, establish in your own consciousness benchmarks and, and positions and angles and means and resolutions that you, that you can use ones that will really work now the, the Buddha Dharma is a, is a very large context is a kind of total context you take precepts and refuges for example that's a very total that can take that's for a lifetime context you know you can be uh, more or less any kind of of uh, of personality can work with that in any in any state you know you can be really depressed and wretched and you can still you can still hang on to those you can still live within that context um, and it's the sadness sometimes that uh, you know the frustration one can feel with with um, Dharma meditators and is, is that they make you know too much rests upon a particular form or technique not that that's invalid but you can't make a total life context out of it and sometimes it's like you're feeling that a particular system gets extracted out of that context, cut out of it, and set up on its own. Or a teacher, you know, you decipher this teacher and you take it out of that out of that context and you set it up on its own. So you belong to that teacher, or you belong to that system. You know, this is the only way you can do it through this particular system and style. And it's it's it's. Um, really painful to see how you know we can actually because maybe a teacher is you know you really get you really get some good results with a particular teacher or a particular system it's not to deny that but but when you extract it from the total context of buddha dharma then it's like you cut you, you, you it's like you, you cut a body and you just maybe cut the head off and you like the head, you know, the head's the bit that talks, so you like that. <laughs> so, you know, it gives great talk, so you cut the head off, because so that's the bit that talks, and you keep, keep that. But what about the feet, you know? What about the belly? What about the lungs? What about the heart? 
Aren't they important too? You've got a, a whole human body. Can you just cut off the head and say, you know, that's the that's the one that really works for me. That's the one I like. It's got to have a it's got to have a body, doesn't it? Yesterday I was just maybe touching into these these like these barometers. This reflection, you notice that um, what I call we have tendencies. That is, we easily run we, in any situation. We can easily run towards say fear or irritation or anger or conceit or something like that. You know, uh, out of out of a controlled situation, out of something where we feel comfortable. Something happens to us, you know, there's an accident, there's a, an unknown situation, there's a sense of not being, you know, on top of things or disempowered. And then, which way does our mind run? Does it run towards, oh, you know, I can't do it, I'm getting out of here, this isn't what I, you know, I can't manage this. Or does it run towards anger, you know, you can't do this to me, this shouldn't be happening, you get irate. These are called um, the latent, latent tendencies. You know, the way the mind, the way the mind runs towards certain, you know, then it gets embedded in that particular uh, attitude or angle, and we can notice in it's a meditation, you know, when your mind is wanders off and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Where do, where do you run? Where does it go to? Where does the heart run to? Does it run to self-punishment and disparagement? Do you get angry and annoyed? Does, does the heart stop blaming people and things? This stupid system doesn't work. Why they bother? Why you have to do this? Does it? Or does it? <laughs> you know? Does it go into depression? Well, uh, useless. Can't. Never done. My life has never worked out anyway. I can't do it. Or distraction. You know, where you just keep looking at something else all the time. Just to to witness. What are they called? These latent tendencies. Anuttaya. And uh, paramita are like the things that you, you are heart practices that you, you put in so that, that instead of running that direction, you run the other way. You kind of train your heart to run the other way or to, to plod the other way or to work the other way. So, you know, with anger, you know, when you tend to do it towards anger, then you're putting in something like a tendency towards, towards acceptance or kindness or non-aversion tendency towards distractedness, we put in a tendency towards resolution, staying with something. And and so that that without maybe going into a lot of details and the, all these different forms to get the essence of what what a paramita is about. It's like a you know like you're training your heart to to, 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 to go into a, a particular attitude. Is there a chance for me to be patient today? Rather than, you know, having that, even that kind of idea in mind. Is there a chance for me to, to, expect, to express my appreciation, my gratitude? Do we ever do that? You know, like love, kindness is just as that much that 
rather than getting by and saying, you know, everything's okay and, you know, taking things for granted to, to actually make, take the opportunity to, to, to bring forth and express and manifest a kind gesture, a kind deed. Not because it's wanted or needed or demanded or you have to do it to placate somebody, but just a free will gift. Um, paramita. See that in that, and a wise person realizes, if I'm being, you know, if I'm being kind to you, maybe you like it, maybe you don't like it, maybe you don't even notice it. You know, maybe you take it for granted, maybe you think, maybe you misinterpret it. So I can't really be certain whether it's doing, you know, whether it's doing you any good, because for it to do you any good is up to you, really, how you receive it. But what I can know is I'm doing myself some good. So with this, again, this, this tremendous, you know, realism and practicality of the Buddha is saying not that you can't help anybody else or don't bother, but when it comes down to it, the only thing you can really, you know, realistically know you're doing is you're doing yourself some good. And this doesn't mean being selfish, but it's just a, a, a realistic understanding of what actually happens. Yeah. When you like, if you uh, say with loving kindness, for example, you don't know whether somebody else is going to appreciate that, receive it, be interested, misunderstand it, think you're trying to dupe them. But all you can know is that when your heart is opening like that, it's doing you some good with generosity and kindness. It's like, do you have to say, do you deserve it? No, I don't think you deserve it. What kind of attitude is that? Or if I give, if I give to you, will, will you, you know, can I win you over? What kind of parameter is that? But just that, you know, it's a, it's a realism. This is very helpful to recognise this this prag- pragmatic, realistic attitude in 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 the living in the world. Because you don't always, you're not always going to get wonderful responses from people in doing your practice. People may not understand, think you're weird, or you can't really communicate or talk about it. You just try, instead of trying to talk about or, or relate through some esoteric meditation practice, just just practice that developing paramita, being nice to people. <laughs> Say, you know. Developing patience. Uh, so I remember one of the the, uh, the monks was saying he was going out on one of his his, his walks. He's kind of you know walks we do in the daytime and walking past uh, somebody. This guy, this guy comes out and says, "Hey, what are you? Hey, you, what are you doing then? What are you? What are you? What are you about? What do you believe in then?" And the monk said, uh, "My practice is being peaceful with people. You know, just a kind of friendly, easy response, rather than, well, you know, we we believe that you've got to do this, you've got to do that, and just that kind of response like that."
So, in this way, you actually you're always establishing a place of non-contention, and, and you're actually manifesting what Dharma is, rather than talking about it. And to really, then, then you don't, when you manifest it, there's no real arguments, there's no misunderstandings. When you talk about it, there's always, well, yeah, oh, yeah, well, I hear this, and well, I don't see that. Do you really believe that you can be reborn as a toad if you do this? And, this kind of stuff and what about the reincarnation, life after death and do you really believe that you know you can reincarnate as something or is there no soul or no self or there's no self who are you then and you think oh <laughs> and you think oh forget you know but, you, but as, a, as a practice just practicing those those, those just set, setting up so you practice those paramitas are real blessings of the world and it's doing and it's the thing that really does us good too certainly living as a Buddhist monk in the west it's you develop a lot of parami like that a lot of paramita just because you have to be you have to be more you have to put more effort into it People don't don't accept you. They don't. It's not all taken for granted. You know, you ha- you're on the edge all the time. You have to really practice being patient because things don't go easily. You have to practice being kind because people aren't always so nice. Like you're in, in Thailand, everybody's really respectful and nice to you. There's no effort being kind to people who are nice to you. <laughs> And in, in the, you know, you go to London and people start shouting at you and, uh, and uh, somebody threatened to kill me. I was on the train. I had to sit on a train. And this guy comes along and says, what do you think you are doing? And I'm just sitting there. Well, not doing anything actually. I'm just sitting here on a train. And he, and he started to get really angry, you know. He wanted to kill me. And you, you know, you realise that that you're just this person, just all kinds of projections and things coming up in his mind, and so just to stay peaceful, you see, and uh, st- just refuse to bl- budge from that position. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to deny anything. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to try and prove anything. I'm just going to stay at that level of this is what I am. This is what I'm doing. I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm not trying to make any statements. I'm not trying to say I've got the best thing going. I'm just doing this. I'm not going to say that Buddhism is the greatest thing in the world and everybody should be it. I'm just doing this. When you practice paramita, you, you also it's conjoined with what's called making merit which is often another thing that can be misunderstood because it's got such a kind of most monetaristic attitude to it, like investing and making merit. But in a pragmatic sense, it is. It's called, it's an inner wealth. It's like putting money in the bank. And it's rather like that. Making merit um, is like, like establishing 
things such as paramita, refuges, precepts, they're called, theirs are called very meritorious. And maybe you don't like the word, but that, that's the word that's used for that particular action. In other words, what, why it's called inner, cultivating inner wealth is that you, you establish something that will enrich you spiritually, whatever, you know, whether times are hard or, or whether they're not, whether people around you can receive you, accept where you're at or not, whether your meditation is going well or it's not, you know, whether your concentration is good or bad. You can still, you can make uh, merit through these paramita. And that's perhaps a more helpful reflection than when you just cut the head off of this cultivation and say, you know, did you, were you able to notice every sensation in your nostrils when you breathed in and out? You know, no, I wasn't, I didn't get it. nostrils, I didn't get nostrils at all. You know, and then the feeling like you failed again, didn't you? And then, you know, you talk to somebody on the street about Dharma, do you believe in nostrils or what? <laughs> and say, well, well, what do you want to do that for? You know, what do you, what, what, what's a big deal? You know, what's the point of watching your sensations in your nostrils? <laughs> Some kind of nut, you know? <laughs> now, of course, there's a lot of point in doing it in, in the right context. There's a tremendous value and advantage in that. But if you kind of cut that out and you, you miss the ground, you, you, like, the thing just is weird. And actually, when it comes down to it, I expect that most of us are going to find it very difficult to uh, to really be aware of the sensations of breath in your nostrils uh, in, a, in a day, or even when you go go home and you have your your uh, you know your half an hour sit in the evening or whatever. You know, you've just been with a class of forty screaming kids for all all day long, and not breath in your nostrils is not really going to make a strike an impingement on your brain. <laughs> You just kind of come home through the subway. There's a you know, gang of toughs on the subway and people bashing and screaming and things like that. And forget, forget it about mindful inhalations, you know. You just get home and sit there and, and be with all that feeling and find a place where, a refuge place where you, you can, you know, you can just hold your, yourself on that and say, now I'll just be patient with this stuff. Now I just try to be a little more, a little more equanimous, or a little wiser, or a little more honest about what's happening. You know, then, then you know, may, maybe you'll find you can just get to bodily awareness or the mood of the heart. And you know, you never know. After half an hour or so, you might even get a few of those inhalations and exhalations going. But you see, you've got to you've got to take you've got to get the context of it, and then you you know you can work towards these refined points and more specialised points as the situation allows. If you just set up the meditation as as a particular you know classical exercise without seeing it in context, it's a disaster. That basically means that that after a while you just can't be bothered to do it. You know, it's stressful enough anyway, living life in the world without creating another set of demands and things you've got to achieve when you get home and in the evening. Do you make your meditation a refuge or another achievement, competition, performance, duty experience? 
the idea of the you know the, or the the wise insight into this kind of field of merit is that you is that you you by by the spiritual goodness the spiritual insights you kind of you invest them into life forms you know like life forms life attitudes life directions so it, you know as you as your insight ripens and matures you think right I don't need that I can drop that you know and you cultivate renunciation you say I, you know I don't need smoking or I don't need TV or I don't need you know sort of some you know, entertainments or whatever you know it's up to you but you know just recognizing just having that that idea in mind that that to 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 cultivate any degree of renunciation is is merit it it because what it does is it establishes a place where of of letting go of 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 simplicity and then being able to to be more direct be in touch with your heart with your karma just by simplification that kind of process not a puritanical process it's a very pragmatic realization that basically if the more you the more you simplify the easier it's going to get because you've got just left less um, less monkeys on your wagon And in particular things you can you can pick up and, and determine, like, you know, I will do this. You know, I'm gonna just get down there and once a day, twice a day, I'm just I'm just gonna get get on that the mat and I'm gonna sit there. You know, and it's not gonna be just the times when I feel good or what a what a rapturous experience it will be. Or it's just gonna be you can do that. And you cultivate parameter around that. So that, that merit of resolution means that with that you, your mind becomes increasingly more uh, upright, more able to, to stand up on its own and not have to latch on to special experiences or states or, or success experiences to keep going. A mind that has to continue to have successes to hang on to is, is in is in trouble. Because <laughs> how how many of your life experiences can you say are successes? I mean, they don't have to be failures either. But why do we have to see things in no, in those terms? Is this pleasant or stimulating or or is it just I don't know what it is? It's just all right, or it's this way, or it's feelings. And uh, just developing that that sense of um, you know resolution and and patience and persistence has got that merit to it, and that you begin to let go of those values of it's got to be good, it's got to be happy, it's got to be pleasant, it's got to be meaningful. It's, I've got to understand it before I can do it. Till we just find ourselves capable of developing a, you know a mind state that rises independent from these worldly values an upright mind.
So we can we can determine activities, you know, particular things we do, things we don't do, places. It's uh, it's unfortunate when uh, a society can't get any sense of the value of sacredness. You know, when when sac- sacredness becomes just uh, kind of dead, um, phony thing, when it becomes a ba- uh, debased by, say, by corruption, by corrupt use of it, say, with, uh, you know, religious forms, when they get corrupt, really, uh, really debase the whole ability of the heart to, to, to have sacredness. And when so often in, in the societies, then the religious forms are used just to morally back up the political structures or the social structures. See, you can't respect them. You know, when when God is always on your side, and somehow, uh, you know, it seems to be rather partial. <laughs> and you, and uh, and signs up for the uh, you know particular political or, or you know or nationalistic or imperial attitudes. And, and aims, which is what they tend to do. You know, all these kind of imperial powers always enrol God in their army. They're fighting for what's right, or so on. And this is just uh, kind of the way that uh, world, worldly powers tend to corrupt the sacred. So it's... it's uh, the, the demerit of this is that uh, it, it means that, that people lose that incredible value of, of context, a sacred context, a sense that life is sacred, humans are sacred, purity is sacred, trust is sacred. These are things we do not debase, abuse. We don't cheapen it. We don't manipulate it. And when that's lost, you really you have the societies in great difficulties. So one has to establish a, a kind of sacredness of things that we we raise up higher than our immediate desires and likes and dislikes, and are even higher than our intellect. There are things that we just revere and bow to. And to create uh, and, and, and make use of sacredness. Even if your sacredness is just the, the dimension of, if you can just make it even just around your meditation, you know, that, that there's the something you revere and you, you give yourself to and you stay with it, you know, you know through thick and thin. And in that, you, in that place of meditation, you try, you don't lie to yourself. And you don't uh, fight, and you don't distract, you don't abuse, and to have a time when at least that's your, at least that's your aim and your your intention. So you can create even create even a sacred space in your home or in your house, where people often find that uh, over a period of time they want to have a shrine, you know, or a room or a place where 
There's maybe an image or a light or flowers or something. Something that they just use like that. So this is a sacred space. I go in, here's the place where I let go of my anger. Here's the place where I uh, say, look at my greed or guilt. And, you know, I don't lie here. I don't uh, hang out here. I just do it for that. Because most of us realize that our, our spiritual stamina is, is uh, patchy. And you can't always make it. So uh, these, these are lovely ideas and ideals, but when it comes down to being very pragmatic about it, how often, how much of the time can you really stay at, at a very pure, sustained level before something in you think, oh, you know, come on, take it easy now, it's all right. And you get these kind of feelings, or you, something in you wants to cut corners, and, well, if I don't, I don't have to lie, but maybe if I don't tell it the entire truth, you know, it'll be a bit easier that way. And particularly in, in um, you know, in, in business and things like that, and in relationships with people who perhaps uh, are not used to honesty. It's difficult to be honest without, you know, hurting people's feelings. And uh, difficult to be trusting. So sometimes we find that you just, Oh, yeah, can't. It's too too difficult to keep at that level. But then, what you do is you can at least establish places or times or situations or or people that you can be that with. So sacredness involves a place. You can say it involves a sangha. That is, a sangha is not just a group of people. The sangha is a group of people who create a sphere of sacredness. You know, where it's okay to disagree. You know, you can look at disagreement in a, in a right, well, that's that, and that's that. You don't have to fight over it. And there's a common honor. The idea of, uh, you know, monasteries and monastics and so on is to have a place, a situation where you can, where, you, you know, you can bring forth your best. And it's, as I say, with any other action of, of merit or barometer, then, you know, you may think you're helping them out, you may think it's good, and so on, but, and it probably is, but also to recognize it's, it's good because it's, it's, you're cultivating something for yourself. So we use monastery, dharma centers, a place that, you know, you can make any place sacred. You make a but then monasteries and dharma centers are more capable because the, they are they are attuned to that way of thinking. At least we, they should be the good ones. I mean, perhaps they you know not certainly not all monasteries are that dharmic, and I imagine that the same thing goes with dharma centers. There's all sorts of power struggles and fighting going on in a lot of lot of places. The human element. But if we actually try to use it as a place where, well, here I don't lie, here I don't fight, here I don't cheat, here I'm honest, here I don't push and, and here I don't complain, here I don't backstab, you know, here I take responsibility. If I can just do it in this place for this time, you know, so that you kind of keep establishing places, situations, where you bring forth your best. 
So that, that's, that has got a great value to it because then the place starts, the place or the situation starts to work for you. You know, that when you, you go to that place or that space, then you, you know, so it reminds you, it says to you, hey, you know, this is the place where remember, and you, you know, you get the feeling, you've got the, you've laid down good karma, so that naturally that place or that person or that group brings up in you what's, what's most honorable and bright. And just again, being very, very pragmatic, when you can't handle it, when you can't do, your, do what's honorable or bright, it's best to, you know, get out of the place rather than, rather than destroy it. Because uh, you always want to have a place where the thing that you know about it is, here's what, I, here's what I brought forth the best I could at that time. It may not have been perfect, but I was really, you know, trying and aspiring and uh, letting go of things in this. Then it, then it will tend to work for you. Oh, like um, with the the Buddha said that, uh, for example, for the monastic sangha, he said, you know, uh, that you, if you live the monastic life loosely or corruptly, it, it's it's worse than uh, than if you didn't live it. It says it drags you to hell. Is his expression because it's like you're, you're dishonoring or cheapening something that uh, should be a place of reverence. So it's actually, you're actually soiling it for yourself and for others. So that, that you're using, using places and situations. And that, you're know, creating contexts. Now it's something that, uh, you know, religious forms are there to, as symbols of that, Buddha images. So I remember Ajahn Samaya telling me this woman had a drink problem and she just used the Buddha image, and she put a Buddha image right in her living room, you know, so that she wouldn't have a drink in front of the Buddha. <laughs> you know, the Buddha's sitting there, you think, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to hit the bottle with the Buddha sitting right in front of you. No, I mean, you can say, well, that's a silly little image, what good's that? It's only made out of clay anyway, then, you know. But, but you actually empower something like that. So just, just having something of that nature may be something that works for you. Certainly, um, if we don't, whether you use a Buddha image or don't use a Buddha image, you realize that to, in order to get past some of these karmic obsessions, you've got to have that feeling that you, you can rise up. That there's, there's a value that you can touch in your heart, that you can rise up to. Otherwise, you've got the upright mind, either in another person, in yourself, in a place, in a community. That that ability, that that which causes you to rise up. And so we have to create places that do that, and spaces, and relationships, and groups, and and images and symbols. If you're wise, you create as many as you possibly can, as many good karmic. Um, benchmarks as you possibly can. You say, you know, I don't do this to humans. With humans, I don't, you know. You can do it with all human beings or with living creatures. You know, I don't kill living creatures. I respect their life. 
I don't abuse people. And we can we can try to establish that with other humans or with just our family. You know, this is someone I'm honest with. Take responsibility. In that kind of in that pragmatic vein, the Buddha talked often about what what are the conditions uh, for the welfare of Sangha. And he was there was a chance, there was an occasion when he was uh, when he was um, asked by these ministers, some ministers of a particular kingdom, about what their chances were of being able to destroy a neighbouring republic. And he said, and the Buddha said, well, uh, do they do they respect their elders? And do they, uh, as long as they respect their elders? You know, so they revere people who are more experienced and they listen and they give them time and they're patient and they have respect. Do they meet together often and discuss things and talk in harmony and attend to what's proper and, and, and talk about it in a reasonable manner and, and gather in harmony and, and disperse in harmony and do it frequently? And they said, well, then you won't be able to destroy them. And he gave this whole list, some of which I've, uh, I can't bring to mind right now. He talked about things like, uh, you know, does, uh, are the women folk, are they protected and looked after? Are they abused? What's the sign of a society that's healthy? Is basically what's being said. So you know, you have to, when we when we look at our our societies, and you think, well, how does it check? How does it how does it work out like that? Are people abused? Are women abused? Are the kind of the the the, the weaker or the gentler or the the uh, the less powerful? Are they are they abused? Or are they cherished and protected? Not very good, is it? <laughs> we look at it like that. Do we respect, respect the elders, or we just think, ah, silly old fool, you know, can't run so fast anymore, get him out of the way. We only want the young and the beautiful and the, and the people who are really cool and with it. Or do we think, this person's been alive for 60, 70 years. They've been through a lot of stuff, you know. They've been through the whole kind of sexual cycle, and they've got to the end of that, they've had children they, you know maybe they, they talk slow but they're probably, their heart may be worth listening to do we do that? or do we just kind of attach to the most superficial values and dismiss the rest you know, the uh, you know, the the merit is to develop that, that respect and that reverence. We may think, you know, if you respect and revere somebody else, that you're putting them up and you're pushing yourself down. You're saying, you're better than me, I'm useless, you know, you have power over me. This is the way the worldly mind works. But in, in spirituality, 
reverence and revering is that which is conducive to your own uprightness. There's no point in doing it otherwise. But to, to be able to revere means there's core values here that I empathize with. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm focusing on. Yeah? You know, like there's gentleness here. I, I, re, I revere that. There's, there's honesty here. That's what I revere. So whenever we, we revere something, a person, an image, an, ang- an attitude, a community or whatever, a place that has those in it, then we're saying we're defining and re-establishing our own core values rather than am I happy, am I succeeding, do people like me, you know, am I the most popular person, da, 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 da. am I a really good meditator, you know, all this kind of stuff. Am I a success? Is truth a success? Is gentleness a success? Is honesty a success or is it a failure? It doesn't work within those worldly values, does it? So the merit and the merit merit of our lives is to be able to put energy and effort and dynamic into picking up those, making the work, bringing them out in our lives for our own welfare and as it's so often said, for one's own welfare and for the welfare of others. The two are not distinct, they're not separate. For our long-lasting welfare and happiness is this kind of Buddhist phrase. Please accept these offerings for our long-lasting welfare and happiness. And what's that? Is, Is it that if we do this with a Buddha image, is it, is it the Buddha's going to look after us forever? You know, do you think do you think that's what you're supposed to believe, or that you're you know you're doing favors to some supernatural being who will write it up in the credit book in the sky and make sure you have a good rebirth? Or isn't it really that the attitude of revering that which is truth and wisdom and serenity and gentleness is actually defining and bringing to consciousness those values. If we hold those, that will be for our long-lasting welfare and happiness. A happiness is not about just the momentary stimulation or excitement of the moment, but the happiness of one's own well-being, one's own honour, one's own confidence, one's own merit. Is why merit is called the real inner wealth the thing you can count on when the chips are down, when you're sick, or you're, you know, when you're dying, when you're having a hard time, when things aren't working out on the worldly level, and then you realize the inestimable value of, of, of merit. Other things just are not going to do it. Wealth isn't going to do it. Even ordinary, ordinary friendships are not going to do it. So, a wise person, a person begins to understand the flow and the, the continuity of practice, the, the way that every facet of it is part of a whole system. It's nothing, you can't take one facet out and say, this is it. It has to be the, the, the whole system. And the... the maturing of insight is to, is to recognize and get a feeling for this sense of everything connects to everything else in Dharma practice. 
And any action, small, internal, great, external, whatever, any action of manifesting and bringing forth that, the, the going forth heart, the wisdom, the, the triple gem in your own heart, will be once for the, the furtherance and continu- continuation of all your practice. Last time I was in Thailand, I was talking to one of the, the monks, and he'd uh, was quite, quite recently gone forth as a bhikkhu, and he'd been, uh, he'd, uh, been practicing for, well, maybe 15 years or so before he became a bhikkhu. And during all that time, he'd, uh, he, had, he was married, he had children and so on. And uh, he realized that his heart was set on the spiritual life. But he thought, he thought um, well, uh, you know, right now my responsibility is the wife, children. This is my responsibility. I can't just say, well, tough luck, bye. So he stayed with that, and he made it quite clear, you know, this is what I'm doing, and, uh, you know, I'd really, this is what I'm, my, my heart is into, but I'm not going to let you down. So he worked, and he worked regularly, and he, so his children grew up, and the girl was about 22, and the boy was about 18. And, uh, you know, and he had to, then as a vicar, you had to ask permission from your family. Is it, is it all right? You know, can you get by? And then he, he, got, he worked hard, so he got his wife a, a big house and, uh, and so on. Anyway, you know, go into all the details of it. But so you could really feel that everybody was happy and, and realized that it's an okay thing to do. So he'd made a lot of merit in his practice just by doing that much, just by making that, that sacred. So you see, even like the form of it, it's not really the form, it's the attitude towards it, isn't it, that, 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 that merit is happening in. And you could have said, well, you know, if he had just walked out and said, well, bye now, and he could have had all that more years to practice in. He could have gone to a monastery and you know, developed more practice. But practice actually has to be, has to be in the context of where you're at. You know, which uh, you've got to keep aware of. Where you're at emotionally, where you're at, you know, where you're at, really. Different, different, different for different people, different times. You don't always know. Anyway, this this chap, he'd, um, after all these years, you know, he thought, well, this is, I want to get off, and you know, I've done my, I've done my time in the world, worked all these hours, all these days, you know, developed this kind of one-pointed resolve. So he, he, so then he's had to spend two years as an Anagarika, kind of working and serving. And then he finally got the became a bhikkhu, and he he was in Thailand. And he got a chance to get get out, you know, get off in the forest finally after 20 years or so. <laughs> get off and really get to a quiet place where I can just really sit down and and meditate and uh, you know, all that. He went to this he went to the uh, monastery off in. Um, Kanchanaburi province, which is one of the kind of more wilder jungle provinces of Thailand. It would really be out of it there. And he went to the monastery. There's only about three monks in the monastery. 
And this monastery is a huge area of land, forest land, and uh, and then the the abbot of the monastery decided they they needed to to do some work to uh, I think they were building a dam or something across a river or fixing a bridge. So they're working all these incredible hours, like ten hours a day, out in the sun, sweating because <laughs> it's really hot. Yeah. Getting really tired and just weren't working because sometimes it's like that in monasteries. You just get out and work, you know, and that's your practice: is working and, and watching watching the mind and, and being with the physical states and the mental states that come up. And you have to do that. And he said, you know, at the end of the day, uh, sit down. Like, you know, after doing all this, at the end of the day, I just sit down and and I, I kind of. You know, I feel really tired and hot and worn out. And he said, and then I, you know, I wanted to be complaining. I wanted to be going into my mind and thinking, what a rough deal I'm getting, you know, all those years of work, and I come here to get some peace of mind, and then he put me out and I'm working and I'm hammering, getting hot, and I came here to meditate. He said, I actually wanted to have that happening. I wanted to be complaining, but I sat there and I felt all this joy coming up in my mind. <laughs> And that was the most disturbing of all. <laughs> and I don't want this joy. I want to feel, I want to complain, I want to bitch, I want to moan about what a lousy deal I'm getting. Instead of getting all this joy. Um, but sometimes it's like that, you know. Sometimes uh, the, uh, we, we surprise ourselves. But, you know, why? Because, because actually at a subliminal level, sometimes the insight practice works at subliminally. You get a feeling, you just get a gut knowledge of, well, it doesn't make sense according to the theory, but somehow this is what, this is the, this feels like this is the place of peace or giving or generosity or honesty or patience. It's, it, that's the place of it. Those are the values I revere. And I've got to go with that. Even if it's weird or uncomfortable or uncertain. I've got to go to that place. Maybe you don't even think it. You feel yourself unavoidably because your mind, your heart, when you've trained it over meditation and practice over years, your heart, just like before it would go to complaining instinctively, it just goes to patience instinctively. It goes to um, kindness instinctively. And so, you know, and then something you wishes it wouldn't, almost. You think, I want to complain. I want to but then you finally don't and you just well that's life you know <laughs> and you do it and then you you realize you know like who's leading this practice now it's not me there's this kind of there's this dumber volition that's taking it along and the me in my mind is going hey wait a minute I don't I, you know I, I don't think I'm like this but you know, you're doing it anyway and certainly, my practice has been quite a lot like that, really. You know, on the me level of, I don't want this, I don't like that, this isn't fair. Mm-hmm. But then you, then you, you find yourself doing it. Because it's a place of giving up, and of letting go, and of, of uh, doing what is right, really. I went to the when uh, my teacher, Ajahn Sumedha, asked me to go to help him dig in the monastery of Amrawadi. You know, so, uh, 
which I knew was going to be difficult because it was a somewhat different enterprise. You know, it wasn't really a, purely a monastery. It was also a retreat center, a much more a place for lots of people to come to have festivals and, and uh, you know ceremonies and lots of things happening. So a fairly busy, active place, a big place, and just the few of us to try to set it up from scratch. You know, but then this is my teacher. So what do I say? You know, to to the teacher, you say, "Oh no, sorry, teacher. Well, thanks a lot, but you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I really want to do that right now. Um, but I wish you well. Good luck. <laughs> you know, do you, you you feel? Well, that's 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 my teacher. You know, that's what you do. And uh, you know, and you go and you and you work, and it's hard." And it's confusing because we don't have the right, uh, we don't know how to do it. And it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of uh, running around in circles. It's a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, accidentally crossing each other and uh, getting mishaps happening. And, uh, you know, when you sit in the evening and meditate and you're just rehearsing the, the, the painful scenarios of the day. Or you're sitting there in the evening, you're meditating, and you feel drowsy, and you're falling apart. You know? Or you're sitting there thinking about the next day. Oh, I've got to get that done and fix that, and so and so. You know? This isn't meditation. What am I doing? You know, or you're, or you're always like 18 hours a day with with other humans, running around doing this. Not obviously running, but just kind of continuing other human contact, talking all the time. And then you sit down in the evening, and you go to your meditation practice and it's just a jumble. You think, wow, am I doing the right thing? Or, but you find, you, you know, you, in your heart, you know, what else can you do? This is the situation. And you just keep going to it and practicing and being there and looking at the doubt or the fear or the resentment. And but then what, what choice have you got? You just want to cop out yeah, I can't be bothered. And I found over time, you know, that over, over a period of time, that what was happening was I was starting to, uh, I wasn't getting more concentrated. I wasn't getting into, into any jhanic states. What I was doing was starting to let go of my views and opinions. My fixed attitudes. Starting to let go of my, uh, hey, I want this, you know, I want, I want, and starting to actually, I didn't come a, become a monk in order to love people, I became a monk in order to get away from people, get out of this world, this crummy world, get enlightened and nuts to you. <laughs> <laughs> get out of my way. And then, you know, in this situation in the monastery, and you find that, yeah, I can't do that anymore. I can't say, sorry, I'm too busy to listen. I can't say that. You know? I can't, I can't put people down. You start to feel you, you've got to, you, 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 all you can do is love people. You can't always find the answer. You can't say, well, okay, you know, you do this and everything's going to be all right. Next thing, you know. You go, you go say, well, I, I don't know, but, um, you can share the space. 
So practice sometimes, uh, just what I mean, like not having something on the agenda. You realize that, that practice has got, something's got its own dynamic. You know? And when you set up sacred places, sacred attitudes, sacred values, and you, you follow them, your heart follows them, and your practice, your apparent practice, has to just learn to keep in line with that. And you find, you know, hey, I, I, didn't, I didn't develop more concentration, but I found out how to be more loving. I didn't even realize I wanted to do that, or needed to do it. Or I didn't develop, uh, you know, more mindfulness, but I learned how to, uh, I found I'm not so angry anymore. I don't have conceit anymore. There's more compassion. And in the total context of the practice, the Buddha said the way of progress, the graduated path, is quite clear. It's a natural thing. And there's a teaching where he said, um, you know, if you have freedom from, if you have good morals, good values, you don't, you don't have to, you, your mind is free from remorse and regret and that kind of hesitant state. If it's like that, you're going to find that uh, your mind is more happy. If your mind is more happy, you're going to find your body is more relaxed. If your body is more relaxed, your mind is happy, you're going to find that concentration just comes naturally. When it's like that, you're going to find that naturally you, you get insights into, into the way things are. As you get insights into the way things are, it's quite naturally you, you find that certain stuff just drops away, you're not interested in, you don't get bothered by, you don't get phased by. And so it's like that. No, it's, it's a kind of graduated training and, and enrichment. And, uh, you know, I want to make it clear that I'm not in any way putting down systems, meditation techniques, concentration, and, and so forth. I'm only kind of, you know, teasing it a little bit just because of the way that so often in Dharma practice those things have become taken out of context raised up and the feet have been cut off and the body's been cut off and the heart's been cut out all you, all you have left is a kind of palpitating brain <laughs> you know wondering why it's not working anymore and when it comes back to it to, to reinvest the richness the insights the values that you establish in your practice put it back into the earth, the context of your life. This is the, the wise way. And it's not just wise in some kind of refined, it's just basic common sense and uh, grounding yourself into, into what's going to be steady for you.
That's uh, the last chant to the sharing of merit. The um, what's it called? Various sharings and aspiration.